Welcome to Harvard Center for International Development's Road to GEM 23 Climate and Development podcast. CID's Road to GEM Climate and Development series preceded and helped launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, which took place this May, focused on the theme Growing in a Green World. Through the Road to GEM series, CID strives to elevate and learn from voices working in countries at the front lines of the climate crisis and will feature important lessons from such leaders through this podcast. This week, we are joined by Shloka Nath and Manvi Bhartwaj. Amidst her other roles, Shloka is currently the Acting Director of India Climate Collaborative, an India-led platform founded in 2018 by a group of philanthropies interested in continuing to accelerate India's development while also exceeding its climate goals. Manvi Bhardwaj is the Senior Manager at India Climate Collaborative and identifies herself as a design thinker who aims to transform systems towards sustainability through behavioral change and collective action. Shloka and Manvi, thank you so much for joining us at the Center for International Development's Road to GEM 2023 podcast. Um, really glad to have you here and learn about your experience of working in climate philanthropy in India. So maybe we can just begin by talking a little bit about ICC's work, like India Climate Collaborative's work, and what you see your role to be in helping India achieve its climate goals. Thanks for having us today, Mansa. It's really great to be here. So we know that India is possibly the most important country today in the fight against climate change. And we also know that India is the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. It is the seventh most vulnerable country to the impacts of climate change. And so our climate story and what we accomplish with our NDCs, either on the adaptation or the resilience front, It can really set a precedent for the rest of the world, particularly when it comes to developing countries in the global south. And so India has this dual responsibility, really, and this opportunity to raise climate ambition. And that is really why we started the India Climate Collaborative. We wanted to help India realize both this dual responsibility, but also use the opportunity around climate philanthropy to harness its potential and drive climate ambition and action in India. So we use finance as a critical lever to drive climate ambition, specifically grant funding, as I mentioned. And the way we do that is we work to identify critical sectors that need investment to accelerate climate action. We drive philanthropic funding towards high impact climate solutions. And we enable private and corporate philanthropy to engage more effectively with climate action. So really, in simple terms, we know that philanthropy can play certain strategic roles in the climate ecosystem here in India and, of course, globally. We think that climate philanthropy can really be catalytic in building domestic leadership base around climate action. We think that, you know, grant funding can be used to scale solutions. It can help remove ecosystem barriers. And that's really what the ICC is focused on. That's great. I I think that's like a very wide variety of work that you're doing in the space of climate-related philanthropy. And given that, I, I obviously assume that ICC has a very strong understanding of the ecosystem as a whole. So would love to understand from you 
what the ecosystem is doing well at present and what are areas that are still underdeveloped or need to be worked on a little more in order to spearhead the large scale action that we need to avoid exacerbating our current climate crisis. Look, what we're doing well is compared to where we were five years ago, in building the field of climate philanthropy here in India, we've come a long way. So there are all, you know, a growing number of philanthropists in India right now who are engaging with climate. We're seeing HNIs, CSR funders and private foundations, you know, they're really entering the space through a variety of entry points, whether it's agriculture or clean tech or nature-based solutions, or even at a more ecosystem level, you know, the way the ICC has, for instance, there are a number of, you know, aggregators within the ecosystem who are now applying a climate lens. So we're seeing a lot, a lot of momentum, which is really exciting. But of course, there's a long way to go. And a lot of work still needs to be done to build more systemic approaches to funding climate action in India. And what I mean by that is that a number of funders here are still looking at climate, which is really a systems issue through the lens of programmatic intervention. So they don't necessarily recognize that their investments are either towards climate action, you know, when they look at categories like environment or funding livelihoods or disaster preparedness, those intersectionalities with climate are not entirely evident. And there is still this binary between climate and development one that we actively are trying to sort of break down here at the ICC because we really do believe that there's no critical pathway to sustainable development that is innocent of climate anymore. It doesn't exist. And we also know that philanthropic capital is unique in that it is flexible, it is patient, it's you know willing and able to absorb high risk, the type of risk that most other capital will not. And so it's really suited to fund long-term systems systems level change, you know, within priority areas like climate, and it can really do that sort of intersectional, you know, foundational work, because climate, as we keep saying at the ICC, is not a sector. Climate is a lens, like you apply it across every area of development. So we know, as I mentioned, that philanthropic capital can kind of really speak to those unique needs, but that isn't happening yet. You know, we really have to cover these gaps in a massive way. So what are those gaps? I think that is the next part of your question. So the first is really around solutions. I think there's a lack of clarity around what um, what what constitute climate solutions, what should be funded, what are really impactful climate solutions that can be scaled or replicable. So while working with philanthropists in the ecosystem, we've realized that funders often find it really challenging to identify and measure suitable climate solutions to fund. But we also know that these solutions are all around us. You know, nonprofits in India are constantly innovating amid very scarce resources and they're designing, you know, quite extraordinary solutions that put communities at the center. It's a very sort of inclusive people first climate agenda. And these solutions are multifaceted. They have both adaptation and resilience aspects as well as mitigation. And that's really kind of the, the sort of inclusive, holistic, impactful climate solutions that we know is really important for India and what funders should be funding. So to give you an example, nonprofits are helping farmers adapt to climate risks that affect agriculture, but they're also looking at nutrition security and carbon sequestration. 
you know, to give you another example, they're training women to lead rural energy transformation in their villages and they're bringing in a strong gender lens to clean energy. Another example is there are a number of nonprofits who are supporting ecosystem restoration projects to build our carbon sink capacity. Others are improving nature-based livelihoods while reducing water stress and land degradation. So there are multiple, you know, we call them co-benefits at the same time in terms of um, the different sort of aspects of both climate and development, the challenges rather that these nonprofits speak to. It's not just with a single sort of approach. They're, they're looking to develop really holistic solutions around these areas. And we know that these diverse solutions have really sort of exponential impact for communities that are already facing climate risks, but they need more funding. They need more visibility to scale across geographies. And this again is where we think grant capital can play an exponential role. And what we're doing at the ICC, we have an upcoming climate solutions platform called Earth Exponential. Um, we're about to launch that later this year. And that's really where we're connecting philanthropists and private foundations, CSR organizations with these nonprofits to scale these climate projects that also have development benefits. Um, and we're doing it across climate smart agriculture, nature-based solutions, disaster risk reduction, renewable energy powered livelihoods, sustainable cities, you know, across many, many different sort of sectors. And these climate solutions represent really powerful stories of what inclusive development looks like as the world grows warmer quite frankly and so there is potential for india's homegrown climate solutions to redefine really the solutions narrative across the global south again by putting communities at the center helping them adapt to climate risks and mitigate climate change in cost effective ways i think the second gap is that there that philanthropy really needs to embrace several layers of impact beyond grant making. So we have to really ask how philanthropic capital can remove bottlenecks and barriers for the climate ecosystem. How can it scale climate solutions by attracting larger pools of finance? How can it leverage deep networks in the development and private sector to bring people together? So we need it to be more catalytic at a systems level, which isn't happening right now, at least not to the extent that it needs to. And then the third big gap is around reliable data. Um, we need that to inform where finance is needed and where it needs to flow. So the numbers in terms of India's sort of requirements to meet our NDCs by 2030 is tremendous. I think India alone needs about 2.5 trillion USD. And tracked green finance really speaks to more um, mitigation efforts right now. But we know that it accounts for less than 25% of the amount that's required to meet the NDCs. Tracked adaptation finance, on the other hand, is not only significantly below our needs, it's also not tracked effectively. So the bottom line is we have significantly less finance that we need on both mitigation and adaptation fronts. And we know that we have to build more data and evidence around this to understand what those finance gaps are and then how we strategically use current you know, or available finance and use that data and evidence, as I said, to sort of build out more effective and more diverse strategies, which will tell us you know, or inform the solutions piece even further, like which effective low emissions technologies should we invest in? Which innovations do we need to scale? How do we better prepare for and respond to climate risks and extreme weather events? 
you know, how do we account for loss and damage? Where can philanthropic capital therefore truly be catalytic? Where is it needed the most? Um, and so it's that shift again, and this is related to point two around the need for a more systems lens, is to move from individual grant making to transforming systems and how, how we think about climate in India. That's wonderful. So that emphasis on a systems lens that you mentioned is really interesting to me. I'd also love to talk about the intersectionalities that you brought up going forward. But before that, one of the other things that you spoke about earlier was that India would be setting precedents for many countries globally, which I agree is definitely a huge responsibility as well as privilege. And also uh, agree with the fact that India has recently been very ambitious uh, with its NDCs, especially compared to other countries in the global south. So I would be curious to know if you have any thoughts about how uh, India's performance compares to other countries, not just in the global south, but also the global north. So, so Shloka, I think already alluded to this, that uh, there is no doubt a huge funding gap to meet our climate goals as a country. In fact, at COP26 in Glasgow, India demanded a trillion dollars over the next decade from developed countries as a condition for delivering on its climate commitments. And then, of course, we also know about the $100 billion a year funding that the developed world had promised to the developing world that's still not been actualized. And then last year at COP, you know, while the loss and damage fund was announced, it's yet to be operationalized. So I think if we if we just look at the figures, um, we need finance, uh, we need international public finance, we need private finance, but we also need strategic philanthropy to unlock this finance. And philanthropy, as we know, is it's nimble, it's risk risk tolerant. It's patient. In fact, it's increasingly being recognized globally as, you know, that prominent P along with public and private finance, because it's really that binding glue for government, businesses and civil society, you know, towards building better climate outcomes. And I'd like to share some stats uh, by the Climate Works Foundation. So according to the Climate Works Foundation in recent years, foundation funding for climate change mitigation has more than tripled. And in 2021 alone, philanthropic giving to mitigation increased by 25% of the over the previous year. So, you know, there's there's this great momentum building up towards climate philanthropy. And we're also seeing the advent of major new donors, such as the Bezos Earth Fund and the announcement of so many other pledges and commitments. We're also seeing increasing collaboration within the philanthropic community. For instance, at COP26, the Global Energy Alliance for People and the Planet was announced. This is essentially an alliance of philanthropy, local entrepreneurs, government and technology, policy and financing partners. And it's been set up to support developing countries shift to clean energy while creating, enabling or improving jobs. Then in April last year, the Global Methane Hub was launched with $340 million of philanthropic funding. And this will also assist countries working to drive down methane emissions. And then this year in January, at the World Economic Forum at Davos, the Giving to Amplify Earth Action was launched, which is a global initiative to leverage philanthropic capital to help generate the $3 trillion needed each year from public and private sources to tackle climate change and nature loss. So there's this great momentum, like I mentioned, but if you look at total climate giving, it's still a very small piece of the pie of global philanthropy. 
And according to Climate Works Foundation, funding for climate change mitigation from individuals and foundations still represents less than 2% of global philanthropic giving, which is you know, also largely directed towards the global north. And if we look at the global south more widely, like even outside of India, Latin America and Africa combined still represent less than 10% of total foundation funding for climate mitigation as of 2021. So there's this disproportionate funding, which is more focused towards the global north, not as much going to the global south. And another aspect to point out is that a majority of the climate philanthropic initiatives are led by European and American funders. And while, of course, climate change is a global issue with its impacts transcending borders, it concerns everyone, but we need philanthropic leadership within countries of the global south as well to ensure that you know, philanthropic initiatives are rooted in local context and perspectives, and also for the international community and, you know, the international funding community as well to align and coordinate their funding priorities in this part of the world accordingly. So I think as the global south, we really need to look inwards and, um, you know, look at the resources that already exist instead of only waiting for global finance. And then as Shoka mentioned, you know, because phil phil philanthropy has this catalytic potential, um, if, it's, if it's leveraged strategically in the global south, it can actually unlock, you know, huge amounts of capital from other parts of the world as well. I mean, why are we talking about philanthropy in the global south and philanthropy in India? So if we zoom into the Asia Pacific, the region itself holds some 42% of global wealth. But climate philanthropy is still secondary to, you know, other crucial development issues such as health, education, and livelihoods. An interesting development in this region, though, is the rapid growth in new wealth. And there is this next generation of potential philanthropists along with the current generation of traditional family philanthropists who are more attuned to the urgency of the climate crisis and the risks that climate change even poses to the core businesses that generated the wealth in the first place. And this pool of philanthropists actually represent an opportunity to really inspire new, innovative, and bold philanthropic approaches in this part of the world. Now, if we further zoom into India, according to a recent Oxfam report, there are 119 billionaires in India, and India is estimated to produce 17, 70 new millionaires every day. So lots of rich people emerging, but while the rich have done well for themselves, inequalities have grown. Also worth noting, you know, Shoka mentioned CSR funding, is that in 2014, India became the first country to legally mandate corporate social responsibility. And that means that companies of a certain turnover and profitability have to spend 2% of their average net profit for the past three years on CSR. And if we look at CSR spending in, you know, the fi in financial year 2022, it has grown at 13% over the last five years, reaching $3.3 billion. So even CSR funding in India represents a huge pool of capital that can be leveraged effectively, strategically for climate action. And it's really time to, you know, unleash this climate giving in India, not just in quantum, but also quality like already mentioned towards systems level solutions that address developmental priorities, that keep equity at the center, along with climate related benefits. And we also need this funding to flow beyond the current reach of international philanthropy to underfunded and climate vulnerable corners of the country. And to accelerate the speed and scale at which we need to respond to this 
emergency of climate, we need bold climate leadership in the Indian philanthropic community. And we're doing this at the ICC. In fact, one of the initiatives at the ICC aims to achieve this by engaging with a cohort of high and ultra high net worth individuals to mobilize catalytic philanthropic capital for underfunded climate solutions in India while building their climate leadership to really champion and influence more domestic climate funding from their peers and also ensure, you know, more critically that Indian perspectives, Indian voices, Indian priorities are coherently represented at global platforms that, you know, determine climate agenda setting. So I think just to reiterate and reinforce that philanthropy has huge potential to unlock public and private finance in the trillions. It's certainly not enough, but if it's spent strategically, it has immense catalytic potential. A related question to that. So especially to the point about India demanding support from developed countries, how do you think international stakeholders can help further India's journey, not just in, say, financing solutions or like providing philanthropic capital, but also in other ways? Mandi mentioned earlier that less than 2% of global philanthropic giving is dedicated to climate change uh, mitigation. And this is a really widely quoted statistics from Climate Work Foundation. And I think it's been quite a rallying cry for increasing philanthropic ambition globally. But what's really interesting is that there's a lack of an analogous India-specific figure. And that only highlights, of course, the lack of focus on the sector domestically and why we need it. So I think there are three things really that we that we need when it comes to how international stakeholders can really help India on its climate journey. One is we need philanthropists to pay attention to and to support India's mitigation ambitions. So international funders are ramping up their commitments, but we need more support from the global fraternity for India's mitigation ambition. And, you know, Mali mentioned this, but we do need to focus on decarbonizing hard-to-abate sectors here in India. It's quite urgent. We know we need to galvanize additional domestic finance for emerging low-emissions technologies to help meet our NDCs. And, you know, solutions in hard-to-abate sectors that are not yet mature can really benefit from that very catalytic capital that philanthropy can provide. That's, I think, a, a, a completely sort of, you know, urgent, immediate need. We need help in supporting India's mitigation ambition. The second is that we can no longer afford to focus only on mitigation. We know that we need international funders to increase adaptation finance. And that this is a big part of our focus at the ICC, to show donors what crucial adaptation and resilience interventions look like. We know that international philanthropic capital is being directed at mitigation efforts in India. But as I mentioned, you know, when I spoke at the start as well, adaptation finance is receiving a lot less attention. And yet our annual adaptation costs here in India are an estimated 45 odd billion. And we're completely underfinanced for effective adaptation today. So we do need to focus on how climate change is already impacting livelihoods, education, healthcare, food security, you know, gender issues. How is it exacerbating these underlying developmental challenges? And we have to invest in building adaptive capacity. So that, I think, is a very critical need as well. The third is that we need global support to meet the climate and developmental needs of the global south. And what I mean by that is that if a country like India can bend its emissions curve while protecting its population from the adverse impacts of climate, as well as of, you know, those systemic inequalities that come with it, 
then it could have unprecedented benefits for the rest of the world, particularly here in the global south. But in order to, you know, enable or, you know, release those benefits, we need to share resources, learnings, insight from what has has worked in the past and what has not. And so we do need to work closely with the global north and developed countries to facilitate and share this transfer of resources and knowledge. How do we put the global south on a pathway to lower emissions while, you know, also developing? And so I think that's going to need to be a very sort of integral relationship with the global north. We need the Global North to meet our current climate finance commitments on loss and damage and for mitigation and adaptation. You know, that great promised $100 billion. While inadequate, it's still not even been met. But beyond that, it's not just about the monetary commitment. The International Donor Fraternity has vast network in developed and developing countries. It can play a critical role in enabling this knowledge sharing and fostering really sort of a broad base of climate leadership that reflects the need of, needs of the global south today. So that's a really important third opportunity in space um, where we think the international stakeholder community can play a big role. Yeah, thank you so much, Lipka. I think that's that's a pretty comprehensive view of what we need to do for the future. And I also want to dive deeper into one of the things that you mentioned now and also earlier about the impact of climate change on other realms of human development and the intersectionalities that need more acknowledgement. So one of the things that I really like about ICC's work is the emphasis that there is a need to integrate climate action as a part of other programmatic areas or points of entry, be it agriculture, energy, or livelihoods or gender. So could you share a bit about this uh, and about the idea of co-benefits as they're often termed? Yeah, thanks, Mansa. Uh, so, you know, as Shloka mentioned at the ICC, we're really working to break that divide between climate and development, right? Like we don't see climate as a sector, but as a lens. Now, what's also interesting is, you know, uh, the backdrop of this is that we're also seeing an interesting trend in climate philanthropy. While, of course, there's, you know, there's, there's still a long way to go in terms of building that system's understanding of climate action. But I think slowly we are seeing increasing acknowledgement of the systemic interlinkage of climate change with you know a wide range of social environmental and economic issues and why this interlinkage is also crucial is because climate change is a threat multiplier that affects and impacts almost every development issue so you know as the climate crisis intensifies it will increasingly have implications on public health on food security biodiversity economic equity social justice and so on and we also know climate action is a is of itself a sustainable development goal, SDG 13, but it's also imperative for the achievement of actually all the other goals. And these intersections, of course, call for systems-based approaches to climate action. And as already mentioned, an impactful and holistic climate solution actually is one which builds adaptation and resilience of people and or mitigates greenhouse gas emissions while also contributing to development-related benefits. Now, the good news is, that because of climate's intersecting nature with other societal issues, there is immense latent potential for funding on climate action to be leveraged by both legacy donors, you think of, you know, Indian business houses here, as well as CSR, 
that typically fund initiatives through a development first lens, focusing on themes, you know, typically such as health, gender, education, and livelihoods. So the entry point of such development first donors may be a cause that they have traditionally supported with climate action as a clear co-benefit. So even if they are not yet primed on the urgency to act on climate, the intersecting causes that resonate with such donors become a great conversation starter and starting point for them to embark on their climate action journey. And their own experience and expertise of engaging on these other causes can actually help ensure that the climate project itself is contributing to significant impact on these intersecting challenges. So, you know, you have these development first owners in India. Then we have another currently relatively small but growing typology of donors who approach philanthropy through a climate first lens. Climate action by such donors must also contribute to other co-benefits and not lead to any unintended consequences. So unintended consequences are outcomes separate from a particular solution's intended or expected results, and they can occur when a solution is implemented without fully considering its potential impacts and consequences on local communities and ecosystems. To give you an example, the installation of solar panels or windmills on productive lands can actually adversely impact farmer livelihoods and even lead to the displacement of local communities from their habitats. So how, how do we, you know, address these unintended consequences? You know, that would be the obvious question is by ensuring stakeholder consultations are undertaken to inform solution design and implementation, as well as its contextual relevance. Additionally, it's really important to monitor and evaluate the impacts of a climate solution over time make adjustments as needed and minimize unintended consequences that might currently be unknown but may arise in the future. I think just to summarize, for both development first or climate first donors, we believe that it's critical to look at climate solutions through the lens of its systemic interdependencies. Thank you so much, Manvi. So I really like that term that you used, uh, threat multiplier. Like, I think that's not the nuance that we often talk about and uh, definitely makes a strong case for uh, looking at things more at a systemic level. So building on that, my own personal interest has been in looking at urbanization from a systems lens and how that can be more sustainable going forwards. So how can we create livable environments in our cities as well as rural areas? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you see climate action by governments and nonprofits intersecting with issues of urban planning in India and cities and regions that are now urbanizing at a rapid pace uh, compared to before. Yeah, thanks for this question, because, you know, the, the linkage between urbanization and climate change is extremely critical given that today more than half the world's population live in cities. And by 2050, an estimated seven out of 10 people will likely live in urban areas. So, you know, cities, urban spaces are going to have, they already have a huge carbon footprint, but will increasingly have an even larger carbon footprint than today. And while cities contribute to more than 80% of global GDP, they're actually responsible for 70% of total greenhouse gas emissions. And if we look at India, almost half of India's greenhouse gas emissions originate in urban areas from industries, from transport, from buildings, and from waste. So on the one hand, you know, cities are 
contributing to climate change, but at the same time, cities are also majorly impacted by frequent and extreme climate events. Indian cities are especially vulnerable to water stress, prolonged hot or cold days, heat island effect, flash floods, urban water logging, droughts, and deteriorating air quality. So recognizing the need for, you know, this integrated urban development agenda that, you know, puts climate action also at the forefront, the government of India launched the Climate Smart Cities Assessment Framework in 2019 for cities to keep the climate lens in focus while undertaking various developmental projects. And this framework is essentially based on 28 diverse indicators spread across five sectors and really helps visualize how climate action across these sectors is essential to ensure the health and well-being of the inhabitants of a city. And, you know, just to illustrate this through some solutions, I'll just talk through what solutions could look like within, you know, each of these five sectors. So if we look at energy and green buildings, Solutions in this sector could, for instance, include distributed renewable energy, energy efficient infrastructure, low carbon climate resilient architecture, and all these measures would, you know, help reduce, of course, greenhouse gas emissions in cities. Another sector which is part of this framework is urban planning, green cover and biodiversity. So we know that, you know, enhancing green cover through urban forests, rejuvenation of water bodies, measures to reduce uh, disaster risks through early warning systems, city climate action plans, you know, all such measures actually help cities become resilient to climate shocks. Then another sector is on mobility and air quality. There's, there's a clear linkage between climate and air quality, right? So enhancing the use and access to public transportation, improving infrastructure for non-motorized mobility, such as protected bicycle lanes and pedestrian pathways, transition to electric mobility, reducing industrial emissions, providing access to clean cooking fuel are some of the solutions that need to be looked at within the sector of mobility and air quality. The fourth is around water management, which I think is quite self-explanatory. And then there's another sector around waste management. And of course, there are solutions we need to explore within these sectors as well. And another thing I wanted to highlight is that one of the indicators in, in this Climate Smart Cities Assessment Framework is for local governments to develop city climate action plans, which include both climate mitigation and adaptation strategies. And in 2022, Mumbai was the first Indian city to set a net zero carbon emissions target for 2050 in its city climate action plan. And many other Indian cities have followed suit. Also, given the gaps in institutional capacity in India, nonprofits in the country have also been supporting subnational governments to develop these action plans. And Ultimately, though, of course, the, the success of these plans would be determined by the quality of their implementation, which also require partnering with, you know, different kinds of solution providers, including nonprofits, who are working on the range of solutions within the sectors that I just illustrated, and of course, much more than that as well. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So uh, I'm from Mumbai and I, I also have been following the climate action work. Completely agree that like I, I was really impressed with the um, plan that they've put out, but completely agree that different stakeholders would need to work together and collaborate to make that 
a reality. So one of the other issues that I think is tied to climate change is who is bearing the consequences and the issue of social vulnerability, right? Like, so uh, women, children, and people from marginalized castes have historically faced disproportionate impacts of climate change in India. And I've seen that ICC highlights the importance of women in leadership roles for people first climate action. So based on your experiences on ground, could you elaborate on the need for diverse voices in positions of power when it comes to people first climate action? And how how is ICC fostering this both within the organization and within the larger ecosystem? I think, look, while climate change is a universal problem, it, its impacts, we know, will not be uniformly distributed. So, of course, when it comes to geographic location, we know that that's going to be a significant factor in, in, in climate impacts. But we also have to look at factors such as race, caste, ethnicity, economic well-being, occupation, religion. All of these actually play a decisive role in how individuals will experience climate change. And prevalent structural hierarchies and societal norms, which actually place women at a disadvantage, will continue to exacerbate under the impacts of climate change felt by them. And so this is only going to increase their vulnerabilities, essentially. That term threat multiplier actually applies to more than just how climate will affect developmental outcomes, it'll it'll also impact societal norms and social hierarchies. So women and girls are disproportionately impacted during climate-induced crises because of that internalized set of patriarchal norms. And this is only going to sort of get worse as climate change continues to advance, especially across the developing world. Their access to resources is constrained. Their ability to recover from shocks is hampered. And so when a disaster takes place, you know, it'll exponentially impact women and girls much more. And I think really, while we also accept, you know, that they are exceedingly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, I think we have to also recognize that women are the most important pillar for creating change. They're also incredibly powerful change agents. And that doesn't get talked about often enough in the climate discourse. They have, you know, highly contextualized and local information and knowledge. They are first line responders, you know, on the front lines, really, when it comes to sort of climate disasters. And so it makes them a really indispensable part of the solution as well. And so when we address the climate crisis, we have to look to gender equity. It's a really, really important part of that conversation. And supporting women, whether it means building capacity for climate smart agriculture or renewable energy powered livelihoods, or whether, as I mentioned, against climate risks and disasters, even nature based solutions, one of the big focus areas for our, you know, upcoming climate solutions platform or Earth Exponential is that, you know, we're really, really, really keen on ensuring that gender equity is a big, big component around all of the solutions that we're putting forward for funding. And so while we as the ICC don't actually, you know, do implementing work on the ground, we actually provide critical support to many nonprofits who are designing and implementing very impactful, low-cost climate solutions that empower women and, of course, subsequently communities. 
That's great. So I'd just like to ask what I'd like to believe is a hopeful question about driving the kind of change that we've talked about so far. So both of you have constantly emphasized the need for collective action across the ecosystem. And I'm eager to know what you think are the essential ingredients to achieve such collective action, not just maybe in the space of climate, but any sector of work that requires systemic change? No, great question. And you're right, we do talk a lot about collective action. And this is honestly because we don't see it as one of many kinds of action possible, but really the only way forward on the climate crisis. It's, I think there are two significant pieces that will define that vision for a collective action. One is that we really need to you know, agree on foundational values. And so what I mean by that is, no collective action without a common value base will survive. So we need to have a very clear understanding of equity, justice, fairness. You know, all of these principles are evolving as well as we are presented with very sort of complex challenges like climate, but this needs to be the baseline from which we operate. So the reason again that I think philanthropy is such a key player in this is because philanthropy has long had, you know, these principles as then as its North Star. You know, even the the conversation around equity has been led by philanthropy when it comes to our developmental challenges for many, many, many decades. And so I really think that it can lead the charge on these values in underpinning collective agendas on climate. So it's really important. I think the second is that philanthropy has to embrace systems thinking on climate. So this is something we discussed at the start. But it's really critical. Climate is a massive problem. Solutions cannot be confined to one sector or industry or set of interventions. And so, you know, systems thinking really helps us understand the scale and the nature of the challenge that we need to address, as well as the range of interventions that we need. It helps us understand the diverse stakeholders that we need to engage with. So again, you can't go it alone. You have to work across the board. Climate is an interdisciplinary issue. You know, the problems are interdisciplinary. So how can you approach them from a single silo or, you know, single intervention perspective? And so you have to decentralize, you know, the way you think about climate. Um, it's just not going to be solved at the single institutional level or, you know, just at the central level. If it comes to sort of government, it has to be across subnational action, which is something Manvi was talking about before. And I think systems thinking also helps us understand what role philanthropy can play. So again, it really will, if we take a zoomed out perspective, we're much more able to carefully reflect on where philanthropy is best suited to move the needle on climate action and how we can do it better. What lever needs to be moved first? It, there, there's no, it doesn't come with an agenda in that sense, in at least this type of capital, right? It can be agnostic in terms of what is the most urgent priority. And that can be focused on first. Thank you so much, Luka. So before I let you all go, I'd like to close with a question that I tend to ask everyone who's doing the kind of work that inspires me personally. And that is, what would your advice be to students and young professionals who are passionate about people-first climate action? I would urge you to look for opportunities to gather field experience because people-first climate action cannot be only based on armchair work. We need to go to the ground. We need to see realities through the eyes of the people experiencing the brunt of climate change on the ground, because this is really the closest you will ever get to experiencing things as they do. And such, you know, education, lifelong education, actually, which is based on building, building empathy, 
is essential to contribute to people first climate action. So climate is a global issue, but it requires locally appropriate action. And in all our best intentions to influence positive change, if we are not rooted in context, if we do not see how our natural environment is being impacted, if we do not listen to the struggles of vulnerable communities on the ground and what their needs are, we may land up in a situation where our actions could be counterproductive to what we actually want to contribute towards or achieve. So my advice would be to go to the field with a curious mindset, be a listener, be an observer, put your assumptions aside, don't just focus on one problem, dig deeper to understand the social, cultural, economic, and environmental context, explore the interconnected parts of the system that the challenge is embedded in. For instance, and you know, I think this, this example is uh, really important, shutting down a coal mine in an eco-sensitive landscape sounds like the right thing to do. But when you go to the ground and you see marginalized communities dependent on coal mining for their incomes, from a people-first climate, act, climate action lens, you would want to ensure that the transition away from coal must not leave these communities behind and secure alternate livelihoods for them. Also, like systems thinker Donella Meadows said, uh, you know, to quote her, listen to the wisdom of the system. So there is tremendous local knowledge and local skills to untap. And a missing piece of the puzzle could actually lie within the community itself. That was definitely helpful. Thank you so much, Manvi. It's been so wonderful to have you both with us and learn from your rich experience in a space that I think is constantly evolving and needs many more leaders to come together towards the shared vision. To our listeners, you can find more information about the ICC's work at IndiaClimateCollaborative.org. You can also learn more about the Center for International Development's research, events, and upcoming podcasts at cid.harvard.edu. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you soon.